Our scripture reading this afternoon as we prepare to come to the table is Psalm 69. Psalm 69, the psalm, the superscription tells us to the, the chief musician, where we're actually not entirely sure uh, what that superscription means, uh, could simply mean to the, uh, the preeminent one. It says that it is set to the tune of the lilies, or the, uh, the Greek Septuagint simply renders that whole superscription for the end, I'm understanding this psalm to be forward-looking. Uh, the lilies perhaps even suggesting a time when that which is here prophesied will come to full bloom. Another a psalm set to the lilies is Psalm 45, which the New Testament tells us is a messianic psalm. And so we may have hints already that what we're about to read here looks beyond King David to one from his line, the preeminent one, Jesus. And so we'll read together Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. O God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me and I'm the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. 
Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. For they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live, for the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Beloved, I've mentioned to you before Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book on the Psalms called Psalms, the Prayer Book of the Bible, where he argues in it based on the places where the Psalms in the New Testament are referred to as the Word of Christ, or based on those places, like we see especially in the book of, of Hebrews, where Christ is referred to as the speaker of a psalm, that the words which David himself spoke, Christ actually spoke through him. That it was the spirit of Christ who inspired them. As Bonhoeffer says, the prayers of David were prayed also by Christ, or better yet, Christ himself prayed them through his forerunner, David. David did not pray out of the personal exuberance of his heart, but out of the Christ who dwelt in him. It is Christ who inspires these psalms with an eye toward his future suffering and glory. As he himself says in Luke 24, all the things written of me in the law and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. The Psalms are written by Christ and about Christ. He is both their subject and their speaker. And if ever there were a Psalm in which this were most evident, it is Psalm 69. One of the most frequently quoted Psalms by the New Testament authors along with Psalm 22 and Psalm 110, some suggesting up to perhaps 27 quotations or allusions to this psalm throughout the New Testament, uh, most with reference to Christ. And so as we read these words of David, we are to see in them a shadow of Christ, where what happens to David happens to him for the sake of the one who is in him. And so as we look at this psalm, we want to look uh, this afternoon first at how these events play out in the life of David but then how they find their fulfillment in Jesus and then how all of that relates to us. 
So we're going to look at it essentially from three different angles, three different vantage points this afternoon as the song of David, the song of the Savior, and the song of the saints. First, the song of David, who tells us, if you look at verse 9, that all of, of the suffering he is describing throughout this psalm, all of that uh, floodwater imagery that we read of towards the beginning and in the middle, that all of this is because of his zeal for God's house. Boys and girls, his, God's house would, would be his temple. And so as David speaks about his zeal for God's temple, remember the temple has not yet been built, but we might think of, of a place like 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord puts it on David's heart to want to, to build a temple for him, or 2 Samuel 24, where he pays a, a great sum towards the end of his life to purchase a piece of land where this temple might be built. David is a man with great zeal, for the building of God's house. But apparently there were some who opposed him in this. Kind of like in the book of of Ezra and Nehemiah where we read of the building of a second temple where there were many in the land who opposed the building of that temple. They did not want to see this project come to fruition. Same thing is going on in David's time. And so the reproach that David bears in verse 7 and verse 9, reproach is is another way of saying the uh, disgrace or or shame that he feels is for God's sake. It is the reproach, he says, of those who reproach God that has fallen on him. In other words, David is suffering for God's sake. Not unlike what we heard this morning in Job, he is an innocent sufferer who is caught up in the great battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, who who as he's caught up in this speaks in verse 5, not of some great sin that he has committed, but here in verse 5 he says, oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. He's using, I think Calvin rightly argues, the language of irony where where it's as if he's saying to God, Lord, you, you know that I have not committed some great sin to deserve this. They say that I've committed folly, but you know my folly and my sins are not hidden from you. I'm innocent. It is my zeal for your glory that has caused my suffering where the floodwaters of their unfriendly opposition toward me have come up to my neck as I sink in deep mire and I cannot get a foothold beneath me, that the floodwaters, he said, overwhelm me. And in the midst of it, David says, Lord, I'm crying out to you. I'm waiting for you as I cry out. My, my voice has become weary in my crying out. My throat dry. My eyes are failing me because of the tears that I've shed as those who hate me without cause are without number and shame covers my face. He says that he has become a stranger to his brothers. It sounds again like what we heard this morning of Job as both of these men are part of a long line of righteous sufferers pointing to the righteous sufferer who becomes, verse 11, a byword. Those who sit in the gate speak against him. He becomes a song of the drunkards. Again, David sounds a bit like Job, a mighty king-like figure despised, mocked, even by the drunkards. 
And yet in the midst of this reproach that he bears, it says that his prayer is directed toward God as he longs for the multitude of his mercy, as he longs for God's covenant love and saving faithfulness. And so David asks God to lift him out of the mire of this um, opposition and emotional turmoil, even his life being in danger. He asks God not to let the floods overwhelm him, but to hear him in his loving kindness and to hide not his face from him, but to deliver him because of his enemies. That's what David says in in verses 13 to 18, after the first 12 verses where he sort of describes this reproach that he's bearing for God's sake. In verses 13 to 18, he asks God to deliver him. He reminds himself and even reminds God of his gracious attributes, his loving kindness and, and covenant faithfulness, and asks God to save him. And then in verses 19 to 21... He returns again to his suffering and holds before the Lord again the the scorn and derision that he suffers, the shame and reproach and dishonor as his enemies have so surrounded him that there is no one to pity him. It says he looked for comforters but found none. And in his hunger and in his thirst, instead of comfort food, is given gall and vinegar, or other translations say poison and sour wine. They try to entrap the king with poison food. And so he cries out to God, and he pleads to God that he would intervene. He pleads for God to remove these enemies and do to them as they have done to him. So as you look at verses 22 and following, just as they have put gall in his food and gave him sour wine to drink, David says in verse 22, let their table be a snare before them. And when they are at peace, let it be a trap. And the reference to peace or well-being, as it says in the New King James, in the context of this meal that they're eating, may actually be a reference to the peace offering that they bring to the altar, sometimes called the table, as if David is here saying, Lord, the meal that they think is a celebration of their peace with you, let it lead to their judgment. Let their table become a snare so that they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. And even as their hateful attacks have have caused David's eyes to grow dim from weeping, as he said earlier in the psalm, he says in verse 23, let their eyes be darkened so they can't see. Let their loins tremble continually, loins which represent strength. So he's saying terrify them and make them weak. They have made me an alien to my family, verse 8, with no one to comfort me. So make their place desolate, with no one to dwell in their tents. And just as they have sought to destroy me in verse 4, let them, verse 28, be destroyed. Blotted out of the book of life and not enrolled among the righteous. David is asking for the judgment of those who set themselves against God's king and God's kingdom. David is asking for and applying the Old Testament principle from the law of an eye for an eye. What they do to others, let it be done to them. David is asking for Genesis 12 verse 3 to be fulfilled where God says to Abraham, those who curse you, I will curse. 
that he is not seeking to bring this about himself, as we said earlier, as we read Psalm 75, but David entrusts himself to God. He is not taking up the sword, but he is taking up prayer. Prayer which God may answer however he likes, either by blotting them out through death or by blotting them out as David's enemies and making them his friends. So we see it at the end of Psalm 83, another one of those imprecatory psalms, the psalm of Asaph, where he says, Lord, fill their face with shame so that they might seek your name and your face, O Lord. And so as David prays prayers like this, it is God's prerogative to answer it however he likes. David is not taking matters into his own hands, nor is he concerned with his own reputation. But verse 6, the reason why he is asking all of this of God is because he does not want God's people, Israel, to be ashamed because of him. David here, as God's king, the, the king of Israel, understands his representative role as the anointed ruler of God's people and is concerned for God's glory. That is David's ultimate concern, the glory of God, and and tied up with that, the welfare of God's people. He is not praying this prayer because of a concern for his own reputation, but God's. And because he recognizes that these enemies he is describing, their hatred of himself is actually hatred for the one he represents. Or we could take that a step further and say their hatred of David is because they hate David's son. He is not praying for their judgment because they they cut him off and, and tried to run his chariot off the road, but because they have tried to cut off his seed and run God's kingdom off the road. This plea is not, first of all, about David. It's about Christ. It's about God's kingdom. It's about his temple. It's, it's about that place where atonement is made and worship is given. This is what ultimately motivates David's prayer. And he trusts that God will answer because God too is concerned with his glory and his kingdom and his temple and his son. And so David summarizes this prayer in verse 29. It says, Lord, save me for I am poor and sorrowful. And then as he summarizes that in verse 29, he then looks forward to God's salvation, trusting that God will answer this prayer And praises him with a song in verse 30 as his despair gives way to doxology, as his protest and plea turn to praise, where he magnifies God's name with thanksgiving. And all the humble, verse 32, all those who wait on God see the salvation of their king and the judgment of his enemies and are glad. And it says their hearts live and they praise him for saving Zion. Again, we see David's concern is broader than just himself, but for all those who dwell in the land and those who love God's name. As we have in in Psalm 69 in this song of David, who of course throughout scripture is a type of Christ, we come to the New Testament and the very first word in the New Testament in Matthew 1 verse 1 is that Jesus is the son of David. And so that's why the New Testament authors uh, so freely apply this psalm to Jesus. Because David prefigures what will happen to his son. 
And even the prayers that he prays inspired by the spirit of Christ in him look ahead to the suffering and the glory of Christ. As we said in the superscription, this song is prophetic. So that's what we look at now as we consider this song from a second angle as the song of the Savior. Like I said, this psalm is quoted uh, more than almost any other psalm in the New Testament. In uh, John chapter 15, Christ will quote verse 4 and apply it to himself as one who is hated without cause. In John chapter 2, the disciples will come to understand the cleansing of the temple in reference to verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. In fact, in Jesus' case, it will literally consume him as it will lead to his death. John chapter 19, the gospel writer will will say that Christ's uh, thirst on the cross fulfills the scripture, almost certainly a reference to verse 21 of this psalm. All four gospel writers will point out that the sour wine that is given to Christ is is, um, a a fulfillment here, again, of of verse 21. Uh, Paul will say in Romans chapter 15 that the words of verse 9 of this psalm were written concerning Jesus, on whom the reproaches of those who reproach God fell. He will even quote this uh, prayer for judgment in verses 22 and 23 and apply it to the enemies of Christ in Romans chapter 11, the Jews who reject him. Peter will do something similar in Acts chapter 1 as he quotes verse 25 and applies it to Judas, saying that what the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning him must be fulfilled. And then Peter says, as it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. You see, the apostles are so persuaded of a Christ-centered reading of Psalm 69 that not only is the suffering of David in verse 4 and verse 9 and verse 21 and all these other places fulfilled in Christ, but even the God-hating enemies of David are fulfilled in the God-hating enemies of Jesus. Those who oppose David typify those who oppose Jesus and his church. Every aspect of this psalm finds fulfillment in Jesus. Even the baptism imagery, the the flooding imagery of of verses 1 and 2 and 15 and 14 is fulfilled. Mark 10, in the baptism that Jesus says he will undergo being baptized in the waters of God's judgment. His weary cries, verse 3, are fulfilled in Christ in Gethsemane and Christ at the cross, Hebrews 5, who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. David's being alienated from his brothers, verse 8, is fulfilled in John chapter 7 where even Christ's own brothers do not believe in him. And he becomes an object of scorn, even to the very lowest in society, verse 12, as thieves on the cross mock him. And passers-by wag their heads at him. Verse 18, he looked around for comforters, but finds only sleepy, scared disciples who, when the shepherd is stricken, they scatter. They disown him and deny him. Betray him. Love to see how David's son makes David's song his song. 
how Jesus fulfills every line of this psalm, even the prayers for judgment, which his spirit applies to the unbelieving Jews in Romans 11 who reject him. Those words are not out of place on the lips of Jesus, but in fact, no one ever had a greater right to utter them. He will judge those who hate his kingdom and hate his cross and hate his gospel and hate his people. That's the point the New Testament authors are making as they quote even the judgment sections of this psalm, that they are not unworthy of a New Testament ethic, but are actually where the New Testament authors seem to focus their attention. Christ is both the man of sorrows of the first half of this psalm and the triumphant king of the last half who God will raise in verse 29 and set on high where all the humble of the land shall see it and be glad and those who seek God, their hearts shall live. Christ is the ultimate representative king who the blessedness of his people is bound up with his own fate. And this psalm assures us that God will indeed, has indeed heard his cry, that God will raise him up and he will make the hearts of his people glad in doing so and rebuild the cities of Zion, verse 35, so that the poor and the humble will inherit the earth. And so you see how this psalm becomes also then a song of the saints. How this song does not only concern Jesus, but has everything to do also with us. Because everything that it says about him, it says about him, verse 6 and verse 32, as our representative. So I don't at all want you to get the idea that because this is a psalm that is prophetic of Christ, it somehow loses its devotional meaning for you individually or for us as a church corporately. But even the most messianic of psalms, the New Testament, commands the church to sing and to pray because God knows we need them. So what I want to do in the time that we have left is highlight four ways that this psalm instructs and aids us in the Christian life as a song of the saints. We learn, first of all, from this psalm that as we are united with the king, We will suffer like him. That's the point that Christ makes when he quotes verse 4 of this psalm in John chapter 15. He's saying to his disciples that just as they have hated him without cause, the world will hate his people too, who may become weary with crying as, as we wait for our God in this veil of tears who may bear reproach for God's sake, verse 7. In fact, that's the point that Paul makes in Romans 15, that just as Christ bore reproach for our sake and for God's, he leaves an example for us to be willing to suffer for the sake of the kingdom, to be willing to deny ourselves for the sake of others, even Mark 10, to be willing to be baptized with the baptism that he himself is baptized, or to become alienated even from our own family, because of our zeal for God's house. This psalm teaches us that God's people may suffer. It shows us by way of our king and representative, the way of the kingdom, that it is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. But in the midst of those trials and tribulations, in, in the midst of that suffering, it also teaches us, secondly, 
that because we are following in the path of the one who has gone before us, we have a sympathetic high priest in heaven who knows exactly what you feel when you too are weary with crying and your throat is dry as you cry out to your God as you wait on him in prayer and don't seem to to, to sense an answer or when you become a stranger even to your own family as is the case for many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world who, who uh, joining the church, being baptized, may mean uh, cutting ties with their own family and loved ones who disown them. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest in heaven who understands. Who understands what it's like to look for comforters and find none, even perhaps in the family of God. And because he knows that experience, you may be assured that even when the family of God fails you, Christ is not, but is your heavenly comforter. Who third, even gives us these songs to sing and prayers to pray, which he sings and prays with us. And we see in Psalm 69 not only the suffering of Christ, but we see the anatomy of every part of the human soul with loneliness and tears and reproach and shame. And Christ knows that. He knows these parts of the human condition, and so he gives us songs like this to sing. So that even when we know not what to pray or how to pray, We can turn to the Psalms and we can pray them back to God. I think that's part of what Romans 8.26 is getting at when it it says that even when in your weakness you know not what to pray or how to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for you in your weakness. I think that's in part at least through the Spirit-inspired Psalms that we have that we can read and pray back to God even when we do not know how or what to pray. And as we do that, We can do it with the knowledge that Christ himself prays with us, that Christ himself sings with us, and we with each other. It's interesting, this psalm is an individual lament, but then it becomes a song of the whole community that they sing together, making it, as one writer says, an invitation to all the people of God to cry out with and on behalf of those who think they cry alone. This psalm is an invitation to cry out with and on behalf of those who think they cry alone. Persecuted believers who suffer because of their faith. Objectified image bearers who feel such shame. Isolated believers who become an alien even to their own family. This psalm invites us to cry out with and on behalf of those who think they cry alone even to cry out with and on their behalf for justice. You see, the fact that the New Testament even takes up these prayers for judgment in the middle part of our our psalm teaches us that there are times when the church can and may, I would even go so far as to say must, take up these prayers for God to judge the wicked, to judge those who hate the king. And who, because of their hatred for the king, hate his people who are united to him. Teaches us to pray with regard to those who evidence their hatred for the son of David by their hatred for his blood-bought bride. 
this psalm and, and others like it teach us to pray for their removal. It is precisely what Peter does in Acts 1 as he applies verse 25 to Judas, whose death, he says, fulfills David's prayer that the dwelling place of those who set themselves against the king would be desolate. In fact, I would argue that because this psalm ultimately looks forward to the time of Christ, that rather than the New Testament somehow being an age in which we may not pray these prayers, it is, in fact, the time in which praying them is most apt. Because the king has come. And many evidence their hatred for him by their hatred of his people. And it is right for the church to cry out on behalf of those who are destroyed by those who hate them and hate him without cause. This psalm teaches us how to pray as we suffer on earth. Teaches us how to pray with regard to others who suffer in ways that we may not understand, but we cry out in solidarity with them. And as the church, even as we we sang a little while ago, the church's one foundation cries out how long she is oppressed and has enemies all around her. Even as we suffer on this earth, this psalm forth um, gives us hope at the end of the psalm that though we groan within ourselves, glory awaits. Because at the end of this psalm, as, as we see the glory of the risen and exalted Davidic king, we, we are reminded that he is our forerunner who having drunk the bitter cup of verse 21, the cup of God's wrath that we sang of from Psalm 75 and drank it to the dregs, has now been exalted and given the cup of messianic joy and blessing, which at the end of this psalm overflows even to us. As we we come to the table this afternoon, we get to taste of that blessing a little foretaste of the age to come that is described at the end of this psalm in which we are given verse 32, life. The Lord's table is a reminder of our union with this exalted king where we, the humble and meek of verse 32, taste and see what he has done and our hearts live. The life-giving power of Christ is imparted to us to nourish and refresh our souls in this veil of tears. So the Lord wants us to see both the suffering and glory of Christ in this psalm and verse 30, to give thanks for what he's done and be glad. That's that's part of what the Lord's Supper is. One of the, the reasons that it is referred to sometimes as the Eucharist is because that word means to give thanks. This meal, which we're about to to come and partake of, is, verse 30, a, a thanksgiving for what he's done, and it's given to make us glad and make our hearts live. This psalm does also give a warning in verse 22 that it's possible to partake of this fellowship meal in such a way that it's unto judgment. The way that this prayer for judgment is applied to Judas in Acts 1 reminds us that he also partook, verse 22, of what he believed was a sacrificial or fellowship meal celebrating his peace with God, but it was unto judgment because he did not love the king. 
And so in Psalm 69, we see an invitation to behold the the suffering of Christ and to see also his glory and to drink the cup of blessing that is his being given life, but only to do so if we are those of verse 6 who were united to the king by faith. Because if we are not, this meal is not unto life, but unto judgment. And so this psalm calls us to consider our hearts and ask ourselves whether we are right with the king, whether we love the king, whether we have beheld his suffering by faith and believe that God has raised him from the dead. And if we have, the king says, come and eat. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the suffering and glory of Christ that is prefigured in the suffering and glory of David. We thank you for how all of the scriptures point to Christ, even the Psalms, in which Christ speaks through his forerunner of his own suffering and glory. We thank you, Lord, that united to him, we share in both of those And that in the midst of this veil of tears, you give us a little foretaste even now of the glory to come. We pray for those who are hated without cause and weary with crying, those who look for comforters but find none and cry alone, who suffer for their faith because of those who hate you and ask that you would nourish and refresh their souls by the bread and the cup. Lord, we pray also for your suffering saints throughout the world and pray for the removal of those who afflict them. That as we sang earlier, Christ would defend his church against both foe or traitor and she ever would prevail. That as she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, that you would endue her with grace as she partakes this holy food. 